This is obviously a very disappointing night for the Labour Party. I want to also make it clear that I will not lead the party in any future general election campaign. I will discuss with our party to ensure there is a process now of reflection on this result and on the policies that the party will take going forward. It's not, it's not Corbynism. There is no such thing as Corbynism. Jeremy Corbyn's undeniable popularity in 2015 was no coincidence. The promise of a radical rethink of the British economy resonated with large swathes of the electorate, who had been left behind by years of Tory-led austerity. Corbyn, alongside his shadow chancellor John McDonnell, promised to reshape the economic landscape to benefit the many, while attempting to move power away from the privileged few. It was a passionately convincing narrative that broke with years of new Labour triangulation on economic matters, and it propelled Corbyn straight into the Labour leader's office, despite the widespread concerns of those who questioned his foreign policy record. One of the first moves taken by Corbyn's office was to convene a Labour Economic Advisory Committee, inviting some of the world's leading left-wing economists to help create a viable and sustainable economic model for anti-austerity Britain. The committee featured famed economists such as Thomas Piketty, Anne Pettifort and Joseph Stiglitz. Just over a year later, leading figures resigned and the committee would collapse amid growing concern with the direction the party was taking under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. Following Corbyn's confused position on Brexit, many of the figures initially excited about the project would become fierce critics of it. Corbyn's leadership would draft two manifestos in his time as Labour leader. While both were ultimately rejected in general elections, many of the policies, in isolation, still polled incredibly popularly with the British electorate. Today, as the Labour leadership battle to replace Corbyn reaches its closing stages, the internal party argument rages on over which policies to ditch and which to keep. Hello and welcome to Corbynism the Postmortem, with me, your host, Oz Katterjee. We're very lucky to be joined by three left-wing economic heavyweights on this episode to discuss Corbynomics, inequality and the veracity of Labour's plans to radically restructure the British economy. Joining us from the United States in part one, we have a former member of Labour's Economic Advisory Committee who resigned in protest, Dartmouth economics professor Danny Blanchflower, CBE. In part two, we're joined by author of the book The Case for People's Quantitative Easing, Francis Coppola and one of the Corbyn Project's early supporters, left-wing economist and author of the book Post-Capitalism, Paul Mason. Before we jump into the show, I'd like to take a moment to thank everyone who's listened and signed up as a subscriber to my Patreon. Corbynism the Postmortem is a 100% solo project that relies on the kind support and subscriptions of supporters. If you'd like to support the show, please consider becoming a subscriber over at patreon.com forward slash or to my PayPal over at paypal.me forward slash ozcathogy. And now, on to part one. Hi Danny, thanks for joining us on the show. Of course. So, I understand you were one of the economists reached out to by Jeremy Corbyn and his team when he first became Labour leader. Can you talk me through that a bit? A number of us decided that we could perhaps offer some suggestions about the way um, a left of centre uh, Labour Party could proceed um, and try and to do sensible things. So that, in a sense, was the judgment call. And John McDonnell actually talked to us about it and was pretty encouraging. So then uh, we had a number of people who joined, Simon Ren Lewis, Piketty, Stiglitz uh, and, and, and several others, but those were really the, the name folk who were really trying to give some credibility to the Labour Party's economic strategy. Sadly, it didn't go very well. When did you personally start to think that things weren't going very well? 
Well, we had a couple of meetings and it didn't feel like people were being listened to. But actually, on a few occasions, I would be doing media events and me the media would say, Jeremy Corbyn has said X. What do you think about it? Including capping the salaries of CEOs of firms that were working with the UK government. And I thought that sounded completely idiotic, but also a more general idea that you would cap the salaries of CEOs to relate them to those of the, the staff. I mean, in principle, the idea of having an impact on inequality was a perfectly sensible thing to do, which is what Piketty and other people had worked on. But to A, come out with a suggestion like that before ever even talking to us about it, put me in a variable difficult position and live on TV, I said that seemed to me completely idiotic. And shortly thereafter, um, they they changed their minds and scrapped it. But that was a debacle. Um, before we move on to more of the, the technical details of what, what went wrong, can you tell me about what Corbynism got right, what you think it tapped into in the early days? Well, I think it tapped into a, an idea that perhaps um, austerity wasn't really the way to go and the idea that you could, I mean, they performed pretty well in that election so that perhaps there was an alternative to the Tories and perhaps there was an alternative to um, tight fiscal policy and perhaps there was a view that social democracy could reign. I mean, I think the economists came to this panel as believers in markets, but markets that could have, I guess, what's the line, strong but gentle father or mother's hand with some sense that you could change the distribution of income, you could give people incentives but perhaps you could be more understanding of people's lots um, and give them and, and pay some attention to what had happened at the low end where wage growth has not been substantial and where many people have been hurting by various policies of the government and lots of people at food banks and zero-hours contracts and all of that kind of stuff. So a group of sort of left-of-centre economists but market believers um, could put, you know, potentially put some meat on that bone but that just didn't really turn out that way. And in the end, the ultimate thing that really got to me was Jeremy Corbyn's view about Brexit. So what do you think his position was on Brexit? Because there was always a lot of controversy about what he actually believed. What do you think he believed? Well, actually, I have no idea what Jeremy Corbyn actually believed. Um, I never met Jeremy Corbyn. I've never communicated with Jeremy Corbyn, which seemed to be a fundamental error. If you have um, an economic advisory council, including significant names. So I have no idea what was in Jeremy Corbyn's mind, which probably is a mistake. They, the, the economic advisory council should have had some clue what the leader was thinking about economic policy and about the referendum and about Brexit. But my view was that Brexit was a disaster. The Labour Party had to ultimately oppose it and do everything they could to work on, on Remain and try and find ways of helping the people who were likely to be pushing for, for Brexit. So I, at the time, I thought it was a big mistake to do that. And subsequently, uh, the vacillation and basically being opposed to it and going into an election in 2019 without a clear anti-Brexit view struck me as a complete disaster and it turned out to be a complete disaster so more broadly on economic policy then so where where do you think that the labor project under corbyn started to get it wrong uh, economically well, there were certainly a number of really interesting things that John McDonnell did. And on John McDonnell, I was thought was a very honourable man, a very sensible man, and I always enjoyed talking to him. So I never had any sense of John McDonnell being kind of out to lunch in any sense. And we talked a lot about what monetary policy could do. And he asked me to set up a, 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 a group to look into what the Bank of England might do, including possibly people's QE or or trying to reach out to broad areas within, within the UK. And I went to meet with folks 
heads of the bank have met with uh, and, and senior officials at the bank. Um, Simon Red Lewis and 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 and, and others came, uh, and Adam Posen was on the committee, and and Lord Skidelsky and others, with the idea that we could just think about: could you find ways of making the Bank of England reach out more to you know ordinary people? And the understanding that inequality was had been a big issue, and the bank in the U.S. Janet Yellen in the U.S. had actually held conversations and conferences and stuff about inequality. So I thought that was a big and sensible issue. And in the end, when I left the advisory committee, that committee on the Bank of England folding was never re-established. So that seemed to be a mistake. And and, and in a sense, the, um, neither Piketty nor Stiglitz seemed to be um, terribly involved and in fact, never actually attended any meetings. And then Simon Ray Lewis did some work, very good work in the committee and tried to set up um, fiscal rules for the Labour Party to operate under. But my sense was that you really have to come up with a package. And I said many times to them, you have to come up with a package where you talk to business and you try to say, OK, we're going to try and find ways where we can work with you and perhaps make policies more kind of user friendly. And if we do infrastructure spends, then potentially those spends can have better consequences on Labour. For example, if construction is taking place and infrastructure builds going on, let's make sure there are lots of apprentices for young people and, and we can we can be concerned about the social consequences of what we do. That conversation took place and I thought it was kind of helpful and then eventually that stopped because I thought that you know, Jeremy Corbyn wasn't listening to McDonald, took no interest in any of the advisors and ended up just making the Labour Party look stupid. Broadly speaking in layman's terms, Labour's sort of economic promises were to vastly increase uh, money for, for public services, to bring about a Green New Deal and nationalise, you know, water, mail, gas, electric. But the electorate often didn't think this was a believable document. And they, you know, the idea of how could Labour afford to pay for everything, you know, do you think that what they were offering was economically viable? Well, we didn't really see the math. I mean, that's cl- it's clearly that the public did not see it as viable. I think that's absolutely right. And and there wasn't really a balance sheet explaining how this would be paid for. And they didn't really appear to answer it. I mean, there certainly was potential here in that there was a lot of public opposition to the, to many of the privatised monopolies like rail and other things that actually could be done relatively popularly. But I think that there really, wa- there really wasn't a credibility because it didn't actually say, what are you going to do? Are you just going to borrow? Are you going to raise taxes on the rich? What are you actually going to do? And I think it all boiled down to nobody believed a word that Jeremy Corbyn said. And John McDonnell was pushed to the sidelines. I mean, I, as I said, I, I had a great deal of respect for John McDonnell. He wanted to do things seriously. And the sense that I had was that he often was fighting with Corbyn to try and get sensible things implemented. And Corbyn didn't want to listen. And sometimes I was the fool guy trying to explain the message that you had to worry about the credibility of a government in the marketplace you had to worry about bond yields. You had to worry about the markets. And, and I used to say all the time, and I said in the two meetings that I attended via Skype, that you can't buck the markets. You ultimately got to, you've got to get in there and be credible in the markets. And you can push them, you know, you can push them in one way or another, but you need to get, you need to get credible. And I think Donald understood that. It's not clear to me that Jeremy Corbyn did. So how would you sum up the last sort of four and a half years of the Corbyn project then? Um, I think um, Jeremy Corbyn, in the end, was aspiring to be disastrous. It was that bad. 
Oh, I thought it was absolutely, totally disastrous. Provided no leadership whatsoever. The issue on the stump, as far as I could understand it, was that nobody thought that Corbyn was credible. So that was the first thing, especially at a time when an election had been called and it was quite clear that Johnson was going to try and, and eventually did win the Labour heartland. And the question was, what did Labour have to offer that heartland other than dither? Um, in the end, that heartland became pro-Brexit, partly because it gave some hope. I mean, we've seen votes for Trump and Brexit around the world. You say, OK, it's been a disaster. You want to have this Brexit. We'll get it done and we'll make things OK for you. And I think if you look back, what did, what did Jeremy Corbyn have to offer people in Darlington and Bolsover and Swindon where the car plants were? Nothing, absolutely nothing. And to vacillate over the biggest issue, I suppose it's the biggest issue in the UK since the declaration of war against Germany. And what was what was um, Jeremy Corbyn's position? Pass. Pass. It's going to pass on all of that. So I think it was absolutely a disaster. Where we go from here, we're going to see. But the old line, I remember my, my old academic supervisor used to say to me, the Labour Party ultimately always have to care about the man or woman on the Clapham omnibus. Maybe it's the Darlington omnibus. But Labour made promises in the air and had nothing to offer. And Jeremy Corbyn couldn't have let his way out of a wet paper bag. And my last question for you, Danny, is what would your advice be to the next Labour leader coming in for what you think they should do for the British economy now that we are heading into an uncertain future with the EU, with uh, Boris Johnson at the helm? I think they have to just be credible. I mean, we have, we, we're now in a world where the incredible has won and we're going to see the reality is going to hit very hard. I mean, I, I sit in the United States. I'm sitting here now. I've been here, in, here for 30 years and I can remember conversations. I mean, people, anytime anybody ever mentioned the name of Corbyn, people would laugh and say, that lunatic. So I think we have to do something that, which is very different from that, which is stand up and be credible and be credible on the international stage. Try and find some kind of states when he's going to actually in the end find things for ordinary people that have been hurting and so i mean the numbers as an economist i i, I mean the labor party didn't even seem to mention this real wages in the uk today today in 2020 despite the spin that's been put out even this week they're four percent below what they were 11 years ago what are you gonna do Come up with some policies that are actually going to restore living standards for the bottom half of the distribution. That's the obvious thing to do. Come up with something that's credible, different to Boris, and say, you know, we're going to have to do something and return to our heartland, return to think about Scotland. We're going to care about ordinary people. And we can't, in a sense, we can't slam the rich. I think what we have to do is to say, this is about fairness, getting people to understand that we need to get uh, the economy and the country back straight again and, and have some international credibility that certainly the Labour Party didn't have, couldn't have under Corbyn. And hopefully a new leader, to some degree, will, will lead from the centre. Centre-ish is probably where we're going to have to go and take on the great fight, which is presumably coming, which is that this Tory government is not going to be possible to deliver much of anything that it's promised, especially to the 70 or so Labour seats that it's lost. So here's, here's the op. I always think trade unions used to be friendly societies and it's time for the Labour Party to be a friendly society to those people who are hurting and look to it to, 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 to help them. People are hurting. Time for the Labour Party to become friendly again. Thank you so much for joining me, Danny. Thank you. 
That was the end of part one featuring Danny Blanchflower. This week's episode of Corbinism the Postmortem is being brought to you advertising free because of the urgency of the situation unfolding in Syria and on the borders of the EU. Thousands of desperate refugees are stranded and in need of urgent and immediate support and aid. You can help these people by donating to a charity very close to my heart. Help Refugees. By heading over to their website over at choose.love, you can help provide food, shelter, and medical support to many thousands of people who desperately need it. It would mean the world to me if my listeners could join in the collective effort and make a real material difference to improve the lives of people who have fled war and persecution. So please head on over to choose.love now and donate what you can. Every little helps. And now, on with part two. Hello, Paul. Hello, Francis. Thank you both for joining me on the show. Great to be here. Very nice to be here. So I wanted to drill down into what Corbynite economics really is. Um, so, Paul, you were quite supportive of the Corbyn project when it, you know, Corbyn announced his uh, leadership bid. Can you talk to me about what the economic vision was in 2015? Well, I don't think there was a Corbyn project uh, at the beginning. He won because the membership just wanted a massive change. And I remember at that in that early period, I was still working at Channel 4 News, so I wasn't, in that sense, an out Corbyn supporter. I was a reporter trying to make sense of what it, what Corbyn on Corbynomics was, and actually, uh, its most discernible thing was the thing that Richard Murphy, the the the, the economics writer, put forward, which was um, the idea of doing people's quantitative easing. Um, then it developed as McDonnell and Corbyn got working, as it were, uh, in that period between September 2015 and then the referendum, it developed into a fairly orthodox, you know, left Keynesianism. Uh, And so they actually forgot all about people's QE, monetary policy, in a way, and Bank of England reform sort of took a back seat, rightly, I think. And it became, the task became to try and convert the party and the PLP and the HQ to to a, a programme of anti-austerity. And in that, I think they were successful. And though, uh, I quit my job to get more involved in the spring of 2016. And I think, you know, we, we at that point were more successful in creating a culture of saying that state intervention um, tax and spend, long-term borrowing, all, as it were, framed around a fairly orthodox fiscal rule, will allow us to project a programme of redistribution that we can then sell to the electorate. That's what the original idea was. Now, there's a lot of things that went wrong, and some of the things that went wrong, I don't think, were to blame for them losing the election in 2019. But um, at the time, that's what it was. If you want to cut to the end of the story, I think we, we... the, the end of the story, four years later, is that in 2019, or by 2019, you're no longer really facing a, an ultra-Austerian Tory party. I think, like Trump, Boris Johnson is about to splurge money. And you do run up against the limits of redistributing through the tax system. And that's something that, you know, for example... On the day the election was announced, I was at a public, so it's public, you know, lunch with Annalise Dodds, who's a member of the Treasury, Strata Treasury team, a load of city economists, a load of uh, accountancy firms in the city, um, saying, I think 50 billion is about the maximum you can get out of the British economy in terms of tax and spend. Two weeks later, comes along a manifesto that says 83 billion. Uh, and nobody told us 
You know, Annalise didn't uh, demur from that. Nobody had told us that the tax and spend offer was about to be massively ramped up, when indeed this is one of the most controversial things you can do. And, And to finish the point, the reason is because I think many economists, including some people who've been quite close to Corbyn and MacDonald, can now see that the British economy is, is so stuffed that not even with a huge amount of, of fiscal redistribution can you actually redistribute. It's, it's, it's actually going to be much more down to a microeconomic supply-side revolution. And my critique of later-stage Corbynism was that it never really thought hard enough about what that microeconomic revolution would have to look like. So Danny Blanchflower, who we heard from earlier, he was talking about how the Corbyn project and McDonnell, they initially reached out to him. And he said that even in the early days, it was mired by a sort of incompetence and that they never really, um, they never really got their heads around the economic model that they were trying to sell to people. What would your perspective be on that? I'm not sure I entirely agree with that. I thought that, rather as Paul was saying, in the early days, there was kind of a coherent offering. Um, the, the question was simply selling it to uh, an electorate that has become used to, um, if you like, the neoliberal project, the um, individual responsibility, individual rights, and much less interested historically now for a long time in um, collective responsibility. So here was Labour coming up with an essentially collectivist argument, um, which is quite refreshing, but I think unfamiliar and in parts of the country not awfully welcome because when you move towards a collectivist model, there are always losers as well as gainers. It isn't a win-win for everyone. And um, those who stood to lose were you know, quite scared and quite vocal about it, I think. Would you agree with that, Paul? Yes, I think the problem with the kind of collapsing neoliberalism in which we live is that, as I write in my most recent book, the the ideology of neoliberalism is surviving longer than the reality. And so Piketty, in his new book, talks about this, the failure of the left to deal with self-employment. Uh, and to attract the self-employed. There's 5 million self-employed people in the UK, and when they see the headline, uh, I'm self-employed, the headline is uh, corporation tax to rise from 20 to 25 or 26%. Well, they're paid corporation tax, um, and they think it should rise to that, but but you've got to have an argument there. The other argument was that, and this is the classic, I think it's an ideological argument, that companies don't pay tax, people do. Well, that is true, but, but it depends in what, in what form people are, are relating to the tax system because shareholders uh, can de facto take a smaller dividend if the corporation has taken a bigger, a bigger hit on corporation tax. Now, if you're going to do um, a huge hike in top corporation tax, you have to therefore take people with you. And the problem was, I've been rereading Sidney Webb, actually, about Clause 4. Sidney Webb wrote in 1917, before he actually wrote Clause 4, before it was passed, he says, look, the core of socialism is common ownership, but that can mean anything from a cooperative shop to a a, a nationalised railway. The desired outcome is equality of outcome. And that's a really radical thing for most people to accept now. But it is what many of us believe. And I think it was one of the things that Corbyn and MacDonald believed. And then Sidney Webb says, 
But the whole aim of this, nothing, none of it works unless we foster a cooperative spirit in, the, in, the, in, the, in society and we wage war on individualism. Well, we didn't wage war on individualism. And therefore, you're up against a bunch of people, like the classic white van man. I mean, I've canvassed them again and again. The white van man to me is not some caricature. It's, it's probably a third of the electorate. And white van man comes out of their driveway and says, Labour, okay, you know, almost like there's the white van, um, you know, bought with my, uh, bought, you know, as capex on my self-employed, you know, business account. Um, what are you going to do for me? And um, what we need to do is to show that person that their current mode of existence is not going to get them, their kids are not going to live a better life than they are, and that there are alternative models. And this is why John McDonald's alternative models of ownership thing was a brilliant idea. So cooperatives, mutuals, municipal ownership, um, B Corps. We never did B Corps. We should have done B Corps. That's where we should have gone. And then... But it's a long, it's a long job. Sydney Webb didn't expect, expect, I don't think, to to convert the entire British working class in 1918 to a cooperative way of thinking, even though actually many of them did live in highly cooperative societies. We don't. Francis, if you could compare, you know, the Corbyn McDonaldite economic model of 2015, the pre-Brexit referendum sort of offer that they were trying to construct, with, shall we say, Blairism, and you know, if you would talking to the layman, how, how would you do that? I think that, um, in a way, um, it was funny talking to my other half today when he was talking about the Blairs, and I pointed out that it was um, Labour that actually started raising the pension age for everybody. And he said, well, that wasn't really Labour. That was Blair and Brown. And that wasn't really Labour. That was blue Labour. That wasn't proper Labour. Um, and I think that, in a way, that is the... The, the fault line that um, there's a perception now that um, the pre-financial um, crisis offering was um, kind of satellite. It was based, still based around individualism. It was based around private ownership, private investment, and government doing as little as possible. Government may be acting as market maker rather than actually owning and funding things itself. Um, so, um, hence PFI, for example, which is very much about government working in partnership with the private sector in what has turned out to be a rather abusive relationship, which has cost um, the public sector a huge amount of money. It's, it's, it's really quite bad. There are lots of examples of those ways in which this kind of government light, um, let's work with the private sector and get things off the books thing, um, has actually not served anybody very well. And so I think, um, in many respects, Corbynism was a rejection of that, not just a, a reaction to it, but an actual rejection of that. And I felt at the time, um, looking far, much further back in history to the time when Labour was much more radical, so perhaps looking to the great um, uh, governments of Attlee, for example, um, or even of, the, of Wilson, um, when we did have much more state ownership and much more um, much more unionisation as well, which is a theme that comes through in the manifesto as well, um, and really an attempt to say we could go back to that time, and that time actually was a much happier time than we have now. Defenders of the Blairite economic model, Paul, they would say, well, look, you know, there's there's obviously there's only so much money we can get out of tax and spend. You put a figure on it earlier in this country. Um, otherwise, we're, you know, we're still we're going to function at a deficit. How are we going to keep the economy growing while 
building hospitals, for example. I want to build a hospital, so why not get a public-private partnership and get, you know, X corporation to build this hospital for me? Uh, it's a mutually beneficial relationship, and then we pay rent, as it were. So defenders of that model would say, well, look, it, it builds hospitals. It builds hospitals and it bankrupts states. And you've also got to bear in mind that, that, Gordon, that Gordon Brown, um, you know, was one of the architects of the financial crisis. Um, you know, he put a plaque up to Greenspan in the Treasury. He united Greenspan, as I remember, and 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 ultimately, we've got we've got here the imp- the implicit problem with the Blairite model is that, nice as it sounds, the financial system always wants more. The world is not big enough for the financial profits that are needed to to go on valorizing financial capital, and so. I was in the room when Tony Blair made a quite famous speech before uh, the financial crisis in 2005, and he was. Yeah, we were all called into the IPPR. We said, "What are you going to talk about?" And it seems to be all about fire safety, and and it was. It was Blair basically saying, um, "Why are we regulating these banks as if they're about to go bust when they're all basically um, benign institutions?" And he and he used the example of you know why you know you, he, I think he even says you don't need. The, the same level of fire safety regulations as you used to because the world's a safer place. And it dawned on me then that what he was saying was, we're going to deregulate the city. And he had to say that because that's what the city wanted. Now, we need to put that entire period of labour behind us. I mean, I, I wouldn't go as far as Zara Sultana MP and call it a Thatcherite period. It was a period of, of left globalist neoliberalism. And then it blew up. And we need a new model. And I think that Corbyn MacDonald had it right that the new model has to be based on state intervention, state direction, which is hard to do when you don't have much of a dialogue with the actual private sector. That was always their problem. And new models of ownership. One of the things I know that MacDonald was thinking about was a new Companies Act. And this was a huge, I mean, for those of us with long memories, there was a huge wasted opportunity in the Mandelson era, Blair Mandelson, when they, the last Companies Act, as I remember, it was 2003, and they could have um, they could have made it much easier for more heterodox, more varied forms of, of, of business to be formed in this country, and they didn't. And I think that MacDonald had the idea of, and he was listening to people in the city and saying, well, what about uh, a company's act that allows Britain to become you know, an, experiment, um, an experimental place for, as it were, a, the benign half-brother of PFI, which would have been public-private corporations? Uh, corporations with a golden share, that kind of thing. Uh, BAE Systems used to have a golden share from the government. So, so I think that it, without, it, we, we need to put that that model behind us because it's broken. But what is absolutely clear is that old-style Keynesian state interventionism won't work, and people don't buy it. And that's what we found out in 2019. They don't buy it because they kind of buy that it'll be so disruptive and it might not actually redistribute that much. Um, for bang for your bucks, my life doesn't get massively better and yet the entire British economy is disrupted by a huge class war. Why should I bother? Francis, can you tell me about sort of, you know, you were, you were quite enthused by the 2015 approach. When did you start having differences with the project? I think um, it actually was this election. Um, I was much more positive about it in 2017. Um, but I felt that it had lost its way, actually. I felt it had lost its coherence. And in a way, there was far too much 
um, pandering to particular interests going on and not enough coherent thought. Any particular interests in, that come to mind? Um, well, um, actually, one of the things that I was quite disappointed about actually was the broadband thing, we, where I think the Labour Party was actually onto something, but had kind of slightly missed the point, which is that actually you need to have um, very good fast broadband for the entire country. You need that um, because that's how you get investment into places that don't currently have it and create good high-tech jobs. That's how you do that. Um, instead of which, it became a let's give free broadband, free broadband to everybody, which was kind of a, a, a populist, an attractive populist idea, but didn't actually focus in on the need. And a lot of people dismissed it as gimmick, which was I thought was a shame. I had particular concerns in the in the 2019 election because I, the other thing I felt was they'd tried to cram far too much in. They'd got a project here, which looks like, when you read it, a kind of a 20 or 30-year project, and they were only going to be elected for five years. Um, and it was already a bit of a tall order because uh, looming in their faces was Brexit. And for me, they didn't have a coherent stance on Brexit. And in a way, what they were trying to do is distract attention from Brexit and say, never mind Brexit, let's look at all of this other stuff that we're going to do. And the electorate was never going to buy that. I'd like to come more to Brexit in depth shortly, but I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the manifesto, Paul, because obviously people keep pointing to the fact that in isolation, lots of these policies polled really well, but together as one document... It didn't seem believable. And even even defenders of the project will say, actually, this document wasn't believable. So who is responsible for that document being the way it was? And and why are still some elements of the party still reluctant to criticise it? I don't think that the, the manifesto on its own was a first order issue in losing the election. Um, it was a second order issue. But but the, so, so the first order issue was Corbyn destroying his own reputation. That's the, the, for me. What happened on the doorstep was people saying to me, he will destroy our economy. They know nothing about economics, but they, know, they think they know a lot about Jeremy. And he was faced with an absolute reputational barrage by the right of the party, by Fleet Street, um, by the BBC, you know, and he just didn't deal with it well enough. And the second problem was Brexit. And, it, and for me, you know, I make no apologies. Right now, when we're being... Uh, when we're in the middle of a kind of racist, nationalist, patriotic offensive by the Tories, I make no apologies for having opposed Brexit and or for a fought for free movement. And we're supposed to go around saying, we're so sorry we were out of touch with the working class of Northern England. Well, I come from that working class of Northern England, and I know that for me, the Labour movement has always been a line drawn through a community on which side you say, everybody decent on, stands on this side, everybody wants to be a racist, reactionary, misogynist, you go and vote Tory. And we try and win people over. We, we don't accept people as they are. We try to convince them through action and agitation. So, so with, on Brexit, we should have... We'll come to Brexit, I know, but basically the, the short version is we should have decided something and then realised there was a, a big remedy for the other side. We, we, we would have had to have done some big gesture either way. On the manifesto, so take an example from from the Alternative Models of Ownership report, the, the promise to double the number of cooperatives in Britain. Now, if we doubled the number of cooperatives in Britain, you would get um, Uber drivers, co-ops, you would get individual branches of Starbucks turning into co-ops, you, you'd get probably entire uh, privatised uh, 
home care departments uh, that work for local councils could become co-ops. It's a huge thing. Uh, and as a kind of from-below socialist, it's something that I care a, a lot about. It, it took three lines of an 80-page manifesto. There was no elaboration, no, ex, no ex, explanation. And if this happens in your town, in Lee Lancashire or in Surrey, whatever, you'll be able to set up um, your this currently very low-wage, low-value business could be transformed with a loan from the government. Nothing about that was there at all. And that's just one example. Everything was treated like that, it was treated like a list. Now, what was right about it was, I think, the focus on long-term borrowing. The long-term borrowing is the cheapest borrowing, cheapest rate of borrowing you can ever borrow in the history of capitalism, almost. And there's a reason for it. That is, you're not, it's great if the reason is we need a railway between Leeds and Manchester. An even better reason is we need a railway between Leeds and Manchester because that helps save the planet. Now, they did that. And what happened? A whole bunch of people within the Corbynite left said, this is bullshit. Uh, we don't want to be talking about borrowing. This is, this is weak-willed, uh, you know, uh, kind of reformist socialism. We want to be talking about tax the rich. The only, people, the only way that's going to make people come out of their houses on the 12th of December is if we tax the rich to the hilt. And actually, that turned out not to be right because the tax and spend uh, program was unbelievable. Uh, it was very difficult to believe it, in part because there's a technical reason, but one that we should have thought about. Both the Tories and Labour changed their fiscal rule about a month before the election. And the Labour said, we found a fiscal rule that allows us to raise more tax. Well, you know, nobody knew about this new fiscal rule, and it just looked like a heck of a lot of tax. If you're going to borrow, you know, if you're going to borrow 25 billion a year, and then raise another 83 billion through tax, you know, I mean, that even Joe Blow on the street can see that's a lot of money. Are they really going to do it? That's what people were asking. And of course, the, the right and the far right were pumping the internet full of Corbyn offers free marijuana, Corbyn offers free sex. This, you, you'd see these, these horrible kind of right wing free stuff, which is also the same stuff that's being thrown against Bernie Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez. Everything's free stuff for socialists. Now, we have to have an argument about that. And you don't summon an argument. This is the final point I'll make about the manifesto. You don't summon an argument, a, a kind of framing argument, around something that starts with, hey, guys, there's an election. Has anybody got any ideas for the manifesto? Because that's what happened. It was a literal blank, blank sheet of paper, and that's what Corbyn's office was saying. Has anybody got any ideas? Well, that's an abdication of leadership. It's not really about economics. I agree with you about the blank sheet of paper thing. It, it, it was a bit like that. And my, I had this awful feeling, as I did in 2015 as well. And, you know, you'd think by 20, or so 2017 as well. But certainly even in 2019, I had this impression that somehow, the, although they were desperate for an election, they actually didn't know what to do if they got one. They weren't ready. They were still in melting pot phase that um, parties that are out of power for a long time go through when they really reform themselves, rethink their offering and create a coherent ideo a new ideology really and then present that and eventually they win and it's almost like the election was too early and they needed more time to think about it and actually to be fair more time is now what they've got and I hope they use that time wisely because I actually think there is an opportunity for the Labour Party in 2024 
if only because once Brexit, I hate the term get, once Brexit is done, but we will get the point when that is behind us. And um, we know from looking at other countries that when uh, some, you've been through a, t- a time of major change like that, that um, afterwards the government responsible for it gets chucked out every time. Brexit obviously posed a new question for the new Labour leadership. And once the referendum was done, suddenly Labour had to start factoring in, you know, the economic impact of Brexit to their economic wish list or their economic proposals. Um, You obviously uh, were quite outspoken about Brexit and, you know, it was an issue for you and you didn't, you couldn't see the maths as it were. Can you talk me through how Labour tried to reconcile their you know, a desire to see the referendum respected in part in the early days um, and their economic proposals? I think what I found very difficult was the attempt to reconcile two fundamentally unreconcilable positions, which was, in effect, to say to Remainers, stay with us, we'll try and go for a soft Brexit, and to Leavers, stay with us, we'll make sure that Brexit happens, um, and never really define what any of that meant in practice. I didn't buy it, and I would imagine there were quite a lot of other people who didn't buy it either. Um, So, in a way, that kind of triangulation, triangulation position, where, you know, we can keep everybody happy if we keep our heads down and don't take a coherent, a a strong position, um, actually, I thought, backfired rather badly. And it actually made it very difficult to construct economic policies for the post-Brexit world because they had no real coherent position on Brexit. I know they had decided they could go back to the European Union and come up with a better deal than than Boris, but um, it it was still based around the six tests, which essentially said, yeah, the exact same benefits of what we had when we were in the EU, and everybody knew that wasn't going to be the case. Um, So... So would you say like the six tests were like a sort of deliberate act of wrecking because they were they were tests that they knew could never be met? So. Absolutely, because they were the, the whole point of the six tests was to bring down the Tory um, p- position on Brexit, to expose it as fundamentally incoherent, which at the time it was to say that you have promised us the exact same benefits of the single market and customs unit without actually being members of them, so go on, prove it. And the trouble was they then morphed into, and this is what we will deliver, having been constructed in the first place to make the point that they weren't deliverable. It it was not just not a coherent position. And because of that... The policies around Brexit and looking beyond Brexit actually became, um, I think, incoherent in themselves because I felt that a lot of it was about kind of let's not think about Brexit, but let's look about everything but Brexit. This election isn't about Brexit when everybody knew that it was. So, Paul, there's a couple of issues with that that I wanted to bring up. Um, One, in the podcast so far, we've had an understanding that voters in the north in northern seats they felt patronised during the, the referendum campaign and they sort of doubled down on it, you know, as the year, years progressed on. And being told, oh, you're voting for this for racist reasons or whatever, they didn't like that. And some of them even may have been aware that Brexit would damage them economically, but they didn't care because it was a price worth paying for them. So that, that, there's one, you know, how did Labour deal with that, you know, cultural, societal, consti- constitutional 
phenomenon crisis, as it were, that, that was that came over the horizon. And the second point is, you know, the manifesto was rejected as being an, an, an not a believable document, whereas Brexit, which was sort of like a unicorn, no matter who you spoke to, had a different colour of horn. Um, you know, so, so why was something like Brexit, why did that galvanise people to believe something that, you know, m the promises we're going to find out were probably unrealistic uh, compared to Labour who were, you know, as it were from the outside, trying to listen to people say, look, we'll give you what you want, vote for us, as it were. I think we should just unpick that. Let's, um, let's go through why, why did uh, working class communities, some working class communities in the North and the Midlands and the North East vote for Brexit. I, I wrote a, a chapter in a book called The Great Regression, which is an international project of left writers, where I tried to explore, I, I think almost prophetically, unfortunately, why my town, Lee, had voted for, for not only for Brexit, but, but, but there's suddenly 20% UKIPs popped up, where never, there hadn't even been 20% conservatism. Um, and, of course, it's not the kind of racism that says uh, blacks are, you know, are sub, sub inferior beings to whites, but it was, there was a lot of nativism. And how it goes is like this. In a sense, it says, it says we dug the coal mines, you know, built the cotton industry, saw it destroyed, fought World War II, our dads, our granddads, my dad's you know, generation were in World War II. Um, and therefore, what comes along is a lot, whole bunch of... And, and then people come to our country and they integrate because that's what we ask them to do. And then for the first time, people come and they... It's not whether they integrate, there's no request for them to do so. There's no request for them to ever think about joining the British Armed Forces, being a, being a, a full part of the civil society. They're just almost guest workers. And, and then the question comes, who asked us? Nobody. Uh, because there was no referendum on the AA8 accession. And then the next question is, what do we do about it? And the answer is, there's nothing you can do unless we leave the European Union. That's what, for me, drove Brexit in those communities. Now, I think, unfortunately, um, so my position was, you know, I fought against it. I don't like the European Union, but it was always a right-wing project. I fought against it. We didn't win. So my first position was, let's let's go with it, okay? Let's make the best of it. We can do a soft Brexit. We can do a customs union, Norway-style deal. Nobody in the Labour Party wanted to do a Nor Norway-style deal uh, because they always wanted to keep it so vague that nobody could understand it. Now, what then changed was in September 2018... In that uh, Labour conference, you get this mass, not only the, the what, what brought that standing innovation for Keir Starmer wasn't just kind of sudden, you know, Damascene kind of conversion by people. It was weeks of agitation by people saying the Tory Brexit's a disaster. The, 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 our mass social base, the, the urban salaried working class hates Brexit and they hate the racism that's going with it. And now we have a chance to... to delegitimize it because it was only a 5248 referendum so let's have another referendum that's i thought at that point and that's why i changed my position i thought we're never going to hold this party together there'll be a centrist party formed for a second referendum and and and, and remain and what is more we'll never keep our, our electoral base in the cities and if you look at what happened in the 2019 election despite commitment to second referendum despite commitment to including remain despite the presence of starmer diane abbott and, and thornbury in the whole uh, shadow cabinet um, we lost 1.1 million voters to the liberal democrats 
And, you know, in, since this is an election post-mortem, we, we should notice that we lost 1.1 million to the Lib Dems in, in December 2019. That's after getting 10 percentage points of that support back because we'd lost probably, I would then calculate, more than 2 million in May. In May, the, the, the polling slump of Labour over Brexit, over, over Remain versus Leave, was so dramatic that had we not reversed it, we wouldn't have even been in contention. We might not have even been the second party. So that's where I think we are on that. I mean, maybe that doesn't fit into the economics theme of this, but it's where I want to be. The alleged unbelievability of the manifesto is, as I say, down to the size of the tax and spend offer. And the, the, the simple, it's kind of, it was like mathematics. It's just, you know, at some point you've got to go into multiplication, not addition. It's not like, it's sort of, you know, we're doing this plus this plus this plus this. You need a narrative that says, all together, if we do these things, the following changes will happen in your life. And nobody seems to have thought about that. I think now, however, we are, you know, Brexit has happened, but there's a large part of the Labour left that wants it all to go away, and it's not going away. Because Boris Johnson has designed the clash with Europe that will begin this week, uh, begin in early March, uh, to be about British sovereignty, the British hard Brexit, we're going to walk away, we're going to do WTO rules, up yours, and by the way, we're going to preemptively and one-sidedly cancel free movement. Um, it's designed. People ask, what's he going to do economically for, for Bassett Law and, and Lee and Wigan? He's not going to do anything economically for them. He's going to throw a racist narrative to the very people who believed it the first time. Only now it's no longer about Brexit, it's about Europe trying to stop us leaving. And it's about, um, well, I think, we're not, I think we're 12 months away from the first deportation flight to Krakow, if I'm honest. And then when that happens, that's what it'll be about. So, Francis, where do you think the Corbyn project went wrong with the people? Well, I think there were a number of things. One was Corbyn himself and the unwillingness to accept that Corbyn actually was a pretty tarnished brand it was, and was under constant attack because of it, you know, that it, they needed to re, really think about the leadership and they still need to think about the leadership, who exactly is leading that. We're, we're in a period at the moment where everybody seems to want to elect kind of big, strong leaders. Um, I, I regard this as a sort of fairly traumatic symptom. It, I find it very worrying, but it's where we are in the world. So whoever takes on the Labour Party leadership does need to have that kind of I'm a big strong person um, in order to be credible as a leader in that kind of world. And I'm not hopeful that that will change before 2024. I think if anything, it's likely to get worse. Um, it seems to me that the zeitgeist is preparing for something horrible. Um, we need big, strong leaders to protect us. And that also kind of explains the social conservative backlash as well. Um, everybody looking for protection in a way, being able to, being prepared to sacrifice their social freedoms and liberties to some extent for protection is kind of where we are right now. Now, that doesn't mean that Labour Party should necessarily play to that, but I do think it needs to be aware of it and expose it for what it is because that's a lot of what's going on. And I don't think that we need to be... Pre I think we need to be preparing for saying actually social liberalism is actually a force for good and in a, in a, in a, in a happy world, it's something that can, we can proceed with. 
the fact that we're not able to proceed with that at the moment, the fact that we've got this nativism, we've got the social conservative, we've got the attack on liberties, um, is not a good sign. And I think the Labour Party needs to be saying that really quite loudly and clearly. Paul, same question to you. I mean, earlier you raised the fact that Jeremy Corbyn faced a barrage from the white right-wing press, which he definitely did. But as Francis said earlier, you know, and I, and I spoke to Anna Turley, um, the former MP for Redka, she said that she had a, you know, a large military constituency with her. And Corbyn being from the anti-NATO, anti-Trident, you know, he campaigned for the release of IRA, uh, convicted IRA terrorists. Um, things like that were never going to go down well with the sort of constituency uh, required to win an electoral coalition and a majority. Can you talk to me about that and, and sort of, you know, Cor- because obviously as a, as a supporter of Corbyn, at least in the early days mm. yourself, um, you know, you thought that, that could, you could be reconciled. Yeah, uh, there was a way of dealing with it and Corbyn never um, adopted it. I saw it done on the streets in West Horton, which is part of Bolton West constituency, which is always a, a bellwether. I was campaigning in the 2017 election and some very young lads came running out of a, a, a hairdresser's, a barber's, shouting, fuck off, you know, you, you IRA terrorists. And this guy was with us. It was luck, luck, really. He just basically pulled his service berry out of his uh, jacket, put it over his head in a very demonstrative way and marched over them say, and said, I'm, I'm an Iraq war veteran. Call me a terrorist. That's how you do it. But no, did we ever make an ex- a- any attempt to connect with, as it were, the British military uh, and, and diplomatic and geopolitical traditions? No, we didn't. And in fact, Corbyn continually fostered the belief among members that he wasn't really in favour of some of the things the party was in favour of, which is, the, people say to me today, don't vote Starmer, he's pro-Trident. I'm sorry, the party was pro-Trident and Corbyn signed up to that. It's being, it's being the, the, the critical moment for me was the Skripal case. I think Corbyn made a huge mistake there, and it wasn't like a mistake, oh, I, I messed up. It was a strategic error. It was in, in, in effectively give, giving credence to the propagandist uh, spin of the Kremlin onto that chemical weapons attack to Britain. Do you not think Seamus Milne, you know, given that that's been his position pretty much his entire career, hiring him as head of comms was, you know, a massive error? Because whenever something like that happened, Seamus Milne was likely to always defend the Russian government. You know, Jeremy was the leader. Seamus Milne's just an employee. Um, It was Jeremy who decided what to say on the Skripal case. Um, And I think it's the, you know, as I say, it it is possible to have heroically, as I think Corbyn and MacDonald did, stood up for the rights. See, even terrorists have human rights. So Corbyn and MacDonald stood up for the human rights of people who were being tortured. And, and, and it, as we know, because I did this as well, stood outside jails, uh, British jails in the 70s and 80s, being barked at being by dogs, being police dogs, being your photo being taken in your face. To, to say what? to say that the Guildford Four and the Birmingham Six are innocent. That's what Jeremy Corbyn did. And I think he should have been proud of that. But what he never was able to do was to connect to that section of the working class. And it is very strong uh, in the small town, ex-manual working class, who believe that this country is a force for good. Um, that was that was the mistake. No. It was compounded over and over, the anti-Semitism, which I'm sure you're covering in, in other parts of this. Uh, you know, the advice was simple. The advice I gave to Corbyn via an intermediary was simple. Sign the IRA definition of anti-Semitism. It's an international definition. Don't try and write your own. But one of the problems we had with, 
with with Jeremy and his advisors. It was they, they there's no corporate background here. There's no background in, in high professionalism. And so what people who've been managers or top lawyers or or prime ministers for, of socialist governments will tell you, like Alexis Tsipras, for example, is that the first thing you've got to understand is you don't know what you don't know. So you don't wake up every morning think, I know everything. You think, what is it that's out there that's going to kill me that I don't know about? That's how executives think. And the labour movement has no tradition of this. And so the, the, the heuristic problem was that they just didn't understand what they didn't know. And they, they, they blundered into mistake after mistake after mistake. And it, it, instead of dissipating, it accumulated. It built the record of bad decisions built up around them. And at that point, they then made the mistake that Ed Miliband had made. Ed Miliband thought that policies win elections. And that I'm absolutely certain that large numbers of Labour activists sit in these conferences and the CLP meetings thinking, if only I can get this policy through, it'll help us win the election. Well, no. What wins an election is a narrative of hope based around a clear story with a beginning and middle and an end. And I know that because I've studied storytelling as a journalist and author. I also know it because I saw Alexis Tsipras and, and Syriza do that. Hope is coming was their slogan. They didn't have 20, didn't have 20 policies. And, and they, of course, didn't implement any of those policies. But they had a story of hope and one gesture. Screw you to the enemy. And I think that's the other thing. We didn't define the enemy. We're, Corbyn was always very reticent to say who the enemy is. It is actually an elite. It is, we are against them. We, are, we do not want our lives destroyed by billionaires. I think we were, we were, we were kind of... The, the figure I keep coming back to in Labour history is George Lansbury you know, and his famous conscience. Uh, Lansbury's conscience you know, kept Labour you know, out of power for 10 years. And I think in a way, it's not just Jeremy, a lot of Labour members were not up for the fight against an elite and let's do whatever is necessary to get them out of power. And that means going to West Orton, Bolton, and being able to speak to those lads in the, in the hairdressers and explain to them why we have the best interest and national security of this country at heart. Um, so that the guy, in the, the big guy with the beret doesn't have to go and loom over them next time. So Syria was something that you spoke quite passionately about in, in defence of those fighting against the Assad regime. You know, the kind of story you told about Skripal shows that the Labour Party kind of had a, you know, with us or against us. And when it came to issues like they didn't know, like they didn't know Syria policy, they didn't know much about Syria, rather than talking to people, you know, to try and get a better understanding of that, the only people they let brief them were activists, you know, or, or on the other end, Patrick Coburn, who'd stood in a foreign select committee and said we should provide military support to the Assad regime. Oh, yeah. That's the only person Corbyn let brief his MPs was someone who'd asked for military support to the Assad regime. So that clearly telling, telling a story to the public about being pro-peace is one thing. But when the reality in policy terms is another you know, that's going to be quite hard to resolve. Look, and I know in, in this debate, you yourself are both a, a player in that debate and have been targeted by the other side, uh, you know, um, as a journalist. Let me just say, um, there will there is no return to, to um, 
enlightened wars of intervention. The population of the Western world isn't going to buy it. And that's including, that includes the Trump supporting uh, right wingers. It includes large parts of Tommy Robinson's supporters. It doesn't, it's not a left right thing that people are done with what, those wars of intervention. And the tragedy is that so many people who are fighting just wars, and I think the, the, the revolt against Assad was a just war, no, no matter the presence of, of some jihadists in it at the beginning. Their, their illusion is that there is this benign West like Batman who's going to come and save them. It's not. Uh, the population of the West won't, won't have that anymore. So you could go back further than Corbyn. You could go back to Ed Miliband, you know, refusing to, to bomb Syria. Um, I think he was right to do so. Once, but once, once Obama had made clear America's no longer an interventionist power, he's going to allow the, the Assad to gas people, what can we do? Um, so, but what we can do is build peace. We can build multilateralism. We can build capacity among NGOs. We can accept migrants and refugees um, willingly and enthusiastically. That's what we can do. But yeah, the, the, the real problem we're skirting around here is that although it's, as an intellectual tradition, it is tiny in the British left, the actual real Stalinism, the, the air of, you know, of the morning star of Harry Pollitt, of, you know, of the British Communist Party, is, is quite strong. Its intellectual, its intellectual, um, its intellectual resonance is wide. And I'm from a part of the left that just says, like E.P. Thompson said, you know, there's two lefts. There's an open internationalist left that's in favour of human rights. The Robin Cook style, no to war in Iraq, but yes to intervention to well, protect look, Bosnia. You could say Robin, I would say Robin Cook's part of it. I think I am part of it, and I was, I've been an anti-militarist all my life. I think and there's a closed nationalist left that wants to relive the past. Um, Thompson says they're two irreconcilable traditions, and I don't think we've been honest enough inside the, the Labour left. In, in, look, I don't want to expel the other tradition, but the price of, of, being, of cohabiting a Labour movement with people who w will want to walk around with a Stalin badge on their lapel at Durham Minus Gala is I have to be able to criticise them and name names of what they are and say, look, you know, these guys didn't just win World War Two. You know, they, they inflicted a famine on the Ukraine and they, they killed three million socialists. And so we're not honest enough about the fact that that deb debate exists. And the, the tragedy is, or rather the tragedy, the, the reason we're not honest enough is because it exists within, it, the condition of it is it exists inside the Labour Party. In France... You know, there are rivers of blood, literally, between the Stalinist tradition, the Trotskyist tradition, which is stronger than, by the way, than the Stalinist tradition. Um, who did what in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the resistance really matters. It's the same in Greece. It's the same in Italy. Because, because we've always had to exist in one party, it's like no one can mention, hold on a minute, you know, you guys, of course, led heroically, the, say, the Spanish Civil War, the, the International Brigades, but it lost for a reason, because you misled it. So let's be honest about that. And I think these old debates, of course everybody wants to bury the past, but the old debates came back during that Syria crisis and they, they're still there now. Um, you yourself, I was, I was Googling on my way here, you know, people actually naming you uh, Oz, as, a, you know, as a person who should be more or less hunted down yeah. you know, uh, for, for supporting uh, jihadis. Um, that's, it's serious stuff, this, and it's, it's there everywhere in the left. And it's better that we have the debate openly and disagree rather than just kind of use bureaucratic means to shut it down. Francis, on a, on a more positive note, <laughs> what do you think Labour needs to do now to try and you know, build an economic model for hope for the future of this country? I think the first thing is 
to actually use the time they have wisely. Um, they have five years. Um, their first task is not to prepare for an election five years ago, away, it's actually to learn to be an effective opposition because they're not being at the moment. And the opposition in British politics is as important as the government. And they've not been doing that for three years. And I want to see them learn to be an effective opposition. And that means, because the Tories have such a big majority, means building effective coalitions within the Houses of Parliament to counter some of the Tories' kind of more idiotic policies which will come. Um, so that's the first thing they need to do, is actually get their story straight in terms of how they're going to respond to the fact that they're dealing with a Tory party with an 80-seat majority, and they are the opposition. At the moment, the effective opposition seems to be coming from the SNP, and that's not a good thing either, because that effectively polarises the UK into England versus Scotland, and that's not good either. So again, Labour needs a position on that, to something we haven't talked about is that the forces pulling the UK apart and where the Labour Party stands on that. Is it actually going to be a party for union or is it going to be in favour of essentially facilitating the flight of the um, smaller countries out of the UK, leaving a disgruntled England? So, you know, which Brexit is an effect that Brexit could have. So these are immediate issues that it's got to deal with. And I think then take go back to what it was doing after the 2017 election, which was to say, let's have a look at some much more radical policies, ways in which we could really transform the economy, not from where it is now in terms of trying to turn the clock back 50 years, but in terms of saying, well, what do we look like now? What are the issues? Where is it that a, 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 a Labour Party, a socialist agenda can bring real hope. And what does that socialist agenda look like? So I was encouraged when they were looking at things like universal basic income, although I told them that I didn't think they were being radical enough. Um, and the same with things like land value tax. These are the things that they should be looking at. Um, not looking back to a, a post-war model that we have outgrown and that people no longer buy. Can you sum up for me, Paul, the main reasons that Labour lost the general election in 2019? Labour lost the general election in 2019 because it didn't have a narrative or a vision about what it was trying to offer to people. And it didn't bring it to their locality. So it never said in, in, in tone X it will mean this. The character of Jeremy Corbyn was besmirched systematically by numerous opponents, but they never worked out a way of dealing with that. And so Corbyn was the number one issue on the doorstep. They had a halfway house position on Brexit, which didn't suit me and it didn't suit the, the, the pro-Brexit pro people either. And it, it ultimately, I think that Brexit was this thing that they thought they could offer to socially conservative older workers in in the places they lost when what those socially conservative older workers wanted them to say is that we're going to deal with crime we're going to support the armed forces we're going to deal with uh, anti-social behavior we're going to be proud of being british and they could never bring bring themselves to say any of that so they said we'll have brexit instead finally the manifesto, yes, it was overloaded and it was incoherent and we need to learn from, from all those three things. But I still think, you know, a, a good narrative and a good storyteller telling the story would have been worth three percentage points for Labour. And they just didn't have it. My final question to you, Paul, 
is uh, what do you think Labour needs to do now to become a party of power again? We're in an era um, where, where the enemy has changed. In 2015, when I was in Greece, it was quite clear to me the main enemy is neoliberal globalism. They are going to smash any left move against that. You know, the ECB, the IMF, the, 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 the Commission. Today, the, the main enemy of the left is, is a nationalist neoliberalism. Thatcherism in one country, I call it in the book. And it's, it's what Trump is doing. It's what Johnson is doing. Um, and it, it, Hannah Arendt called the social force behind this the, the temporary alliance of the elite and the mob. Now, the only way to beat a temporary alliance of the elite and the mob, because it's so strong, when a politician like Johnson is giving people permission to be racist, the only way to defeat it is a temporary alliance of the centre and the left. Now, I'm on the left, and and the centre needs to decide it wants a temporary alliance with me, and I need to do things that make that happen. That's the big strategic issue that nobody's talking about inside Labour, except Clive Lewis, who nobody wanted to hear. Yeah? We're going to have to make electoral alliances. We're going to need constitutional reform. We're going to have to alliances from below between, between all the progressive parties. Then, within that, Labour needs a much more limited and focused programme, which for me is about three things. Climate change, redistribution of wealth, and redistribution of power, spatially and socially. And I would, my advice to the incoming Labour leader would be to say, to every policy that comes along through conference or in the shadow cabinet or from some think tank, does it decarbonise Britain? Does it redistribute wealth quickly and demonstrably in a way that people buy? And will it de- redistribute power? If it does all three, it's in. If it doesn't two out of the three, where's the third bit going to come from? If not, forget about it. Put it on the nice-to-have long list. And it was the failure to do that, really. It's not, it, it wasn't in the six weeks before the elections. It was in the four years before that, that vital moment. It was our failure to prioritise and tell a story that ultimately convinced large numbers of people that that Labour wasn't serious. We need to look serious. And the final and the final point is the leader has to look like they could be... It doesn't matter whether it's a man or a woman. It, they have to look like they could be Britain's representative in the world. Go to Davos, go to the UN, go to the OECD and stand up and say, I stand for Britain. And until we do that... Uh, we're not going to win. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining me. You have been listening to Corbynism, the Postmortem. I'd like to thank my guests, Danny Blanchflower, Francis Coppola and Paul Mason. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing to my Patreon over at patreon.com forward slash Links to my Patreon and PayPal are available again in the podcast description.